So, uh, here we are again, right? We've been one, two, three, four, five times meeting here this weekend with discussions, and so tonight we'll just ask for questions and see where it takes us. But um, how many of you are leaving tonight after the program? Mm-hmm. How many are staying? Mm-hmm. Okay, about half and half. Some have maybe had to leave already. Um, but it's been uh, it's been very nice from from my side. I hope you're also having a good good time here. Any questions? Yes, Valchander. Um, you were speaking last night, and I had a question regarding where does what's technically referred to as Subda Brahman, a Purusheya, descending sound, what exact literatures embody that, and like the writings of the Goswamis, do we consider them Subda Brahman since for our lineages, they're coming from the other side. Yeah, I understand your question. The word uh, apurusheya means, um, in this um, context which you've cited, apurusheya means, uh, refers to unauthored knowledge, I guess you could say, or sounds, unauthored sounds. I've given an example of... Um, of um, mathematics. More modern example helps appreciate the concept. Um, as you know, there are mathematicians who believe that math is invented by humans to describe the world, and then there are uh, mathematicians who believe that math is equations are embedded in in reality and discovered by humans. Um, and there are many of them, and, but I believe that's the majority of mathematicians, believe it or not. <laughs> um, one of the great examples of um, that latter type of mathematician is the uh, uh, famous Indian mathematician who became a fellow at Oxford, and recently they made a movie about him, uh, Ramanujan, and he would... Uh, um, he would he would see the uh, equations, and therefore he was convinced of their reality, and he would see them um, in connection with his uh, worship of his deity. So, from his perspective, the deity revealed the equations to him, and then he would write them out and so forth, and and uh, he was a young man at the time, and he, he passed away at an early age as, as well. But uh, he ended up in, in Oxford in, in, in England and at the university there. And, uh, and despite the racist uh, uh, kind of environment that he found himself in at the, at the time, he, um, his knowledge, if you will, prevailed, and, and he became a celebrated mathematician there in his lifetime and um, so it's a good example and he, he and uh, similarly there are musicians who can see notes hmm? 
similar idea. But um, and and to follow through on that, the the, the idea of the apurusheya, that's an unauthored sounds, shabda, and um, they can be heard if your ear is attuned, just like a dog can hear a dog whistle, but humans can't, something like that. So there are sounds to the universe that can be heard. This is the idea in the Veda of the creation by sound. Brahma hears the sounds mantra and and invokes them and really everything has a sound, scientifically speaking, and everything is in, in, in motion. So so this is the idea that, that that there are sounds that are heard and they are called shruti. Shruti means heard. Hmm? And they're unauthored. But they're written down, just like the mathematicians who believe that this, the equations are discovered and then they're written down um, rather than taking credit for having in, invented them as, as ways of explaining um, the world. Hmm? So, the question is, what of the sacred body of literature amongst the Hindus hmm, is a Purusheya? And where do the writings of our teachers and our lineage and so forth fit in comparatively or accordingly, right? So, um, but it's good to just digest the idea. It's an idea that um, that it's not as, uh, let's say, fanciful, and not fanciful at all, but as fanciful as some people um, think without having thought even of the example that I've given. Uh, the mantras, the sounds, if you will, are basically are equations of, of, of sorts, uh, formulas of sound that have corresponding uh, physical reality that tell you something, explain something about the uh, the world. And the thought uh, within uh, Hinduism is, of course, that as there are sounds out of which the world comes, there are sounds by which one can dissolve the world for oneself, that is, or to transcend it. Hmm? And somebody once asked me, what are those sounds? I just replied with the two-syllable word, Krishna, <laughs> is uh, to uh, say it in the way that Rupa Goswami did uh, in his Namastakam. Nikila Shuti Api Ratnamolam, that the sounds of the Shruti, of the Upanishads, the sounds in the Upanishads that are efficacious for in terms of affording transcendence of the world, which the implication of which is understanding the world. There's different ways I would I guess you could say of understanding the world. We can understand the world in terms of details and we can understand the world by understanding it in essence and rising above it. So to transcend the world means to understand the world without necessarily understanding all the details of of how nature uh, works. 
Hmm? Um, and, and this is pretty much the focus of the sacred text with regard to the world and how it works. It's not looking at it through a empirical, scientific lens to understand every nuanced detail of its workings, but with a broader um, lens um, as to essentially what it's about. And essentially what it's about, a, a good word that's invoked, is maya. It's not what it appears to be. It does, it is something. There is a physical world. So the Vedanta perspective is not pure, unadulterated, imperial, uh, uh, um, uh, what is it? No, um, um, idealism. Idealism, like Berkeley's idealism, like if the for, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody sees it, did, did, did it really fall? Is it really there? Is the world, the world is all in the mind. There is no objective physical world. This is also a, an Advaitin um, perspective. That there is no world. The Gaudiya perspective and that of all other schools of Vedanta do posit that there is something called matter. There is a world. There is an objective world. There is, but, but the basic stuff of the world is on the one hand different than what it's been, has in recent times been thought to be like, for example, in Newtonian uh, physics and so forth, and more like kind of what, uh, I guess, the quantum perspective um, seems to say matter is like like information, um, and more mind-like than hard stuff, physical-like, so forth. But at any rate, it's there. There is an objective world, but it's perceived, of course, differently and in its virgin kind of state it cannot be penetrated with uh with 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 the mind and uh or the senses this is kind of the vedic perspective but essentially what it is is it's that it's not what it what it's perceived to be hmm? and maya this word while it means illusion it also means to measure so it's it's something that can't be measured. When Sukadev, Sukabak, Sukamuni of the Bhagwat, the main speaker of the Bhagwat Purana, was asked by the Raj, the Emperor Parikshit, in the fifth canto, tell me something about the material world, which is also a manifestation of the Godhead, by which I may know something more about him as well. As I said, he's asking for certain people in the audience for a certain type of response at that time. Um, but Sugadev replies, initially, he said, well, what can I say? No one can know it comprehensively. It is basically a transformation of the gunas, of Rajas, Thomas, and Sattvic. Again, as I said last night, the Rishis experienced that within the psychic realm of their experience, the realm of our experience, I mean, what do we know other than, I mean, no. <laughs> uh, where's Krishna Chaitanya? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what do we know? We, we, we may, we may have experiences that we may find were, gave a false reading, for example, 
of the nature of being and reality. But we can be sure that we experience. We may have experiences that are not accurate, or, but but that we experience, that we know. Hmm? When the famous Bertrand Russell wrote his book on the nature of matter, this is the conclu- famous atheist, this is the conclusion that he came to. All we really know, we really know, is that we we experience, or he put it like this, our own consciousness. We know that we know that we're aware and experiencing hmm? what there is to be experienced. If anything, outside of the fact that we're experiencing, uh, you know, that's all uh, a conjecture, something like that. So these are um, testaments, if you will, that are really um, supportive of the uh, perspective. Um, of Vedanta when Sugadev said you can't know it comprehensively it's a transformation of the gunas it means that in the rishis they 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 analyzed their experience which they they knew to be reality that I'm experiencing and in the context of that they 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 concluded and that experiencing comes in basically in three forms a sense of contentment sattva a sense of a sense of discontentment which means rajas which which implies movement that i might become content hmm. i got to do something so so contentment sattva discontent rajas and delusion tamas and so this this is the basis of the of of the of what's what's out there. Hmm? And the mind is included as part of kind of subtly what's out there in that it's distinguished from the Atma and then the physical world is mediated hmm, by the soul. Uh, it's a, the, the physical world is mediated by the, by the mind, hmm? by the subtle body. So there's the gross physical world, there's the, there's, the, there's the Atma, the self, consciousness proper, which is never touches matter. And then this subtle matter, mind stuff, mediates the experience of matter. So we get a, a experience of matter in the realm of mind. Hmm? And we never touch the matter, and we never touch the mind, but the self and its illuminating power and its experiential nature is r- reflected on subtle matter, which is matter, but it's different than gross matter, so it has the capacity to reflect the kind of the essence of consciousness. Therefore, it takes on a quasi-subjective kind of nature. And then we, as atmas, as units of consciousness, experience the world, kind of, hmm, um, in the realm of, of the mind. Hmm? Um, so, anyway, he said, and so in the Rishi's thought, as these three contentment, discontentment, uh, delusion are part of my experience. The world must be also made up of discontentment, contentment, and, and delusion. So you have these gunas, as they're called, the, the uh, rajas, tamas, and sattva. This is the makeup, the basic makeup of the world from the Vedanta perspective. And then, of course, uh, for those who are not as well um, informed about the topic, uh, the world can be divided as the Gita does 
for example, in, in later chapters, in the metaphysical chapters, the last six chapters, divide the world up in terms of these influences. So, you know, if you're driving down the street and you see a sign that says, um, you know, and Mary Jane won $300. Come and put your money in the slot machine over here and have a drink while you're at it. So that would be like delusion, hmm? uh, promoting it, it itself, something like that. Or, you know, somewhere else you see, uh, you know, a sign on a church that says, you know, do unto others as you do unto yourself. A sattvic perspective. Because by, by giving, there's a kind of knowing and a getting that comes from that that makes oneself content. And, so, and then there are the signs for climbing up the corporate ladder or whatever it may be. Hmm? And we can see that these influences are in our lives. We have some sense of discontentment, some sense of contentment, some sense of delusion, and so forth. And, of course, the contentment is a, is a, is a mode of nature that brings clarity of thought and ultimately affords us inspiration to pursue that which we are, which is different from matter and to transcend matter. But at any rate, Sukade Muni, he says in the Bhagavatam, this is the, what the world is, what can I tell you? I've tried to say something further, but basically it's a transformation of the gunas. And you can't know it. No one can know it comprehensively. I mean, it's interesting to look at it from a scientific point of view. As You, you, know, you, you look inside the atom as far as they can look in, and while it brings some insight pragmatically, insight f- from a pragmatic point of view, you, you learn something and measure to some extent some aspect of matter, hmm? this measurement works. Taking that information, we can create a gizmo or a gadget or, or something to improve, as it's thought, our life. That, that kind of measurement you can, you can do. Hmm? But to measure the whole thing and bring it in the fist of your intellect and understand it, hmm? that's maya. Therefore, maya means to measure. Hmm? So you cannot, it cannot be measured. It cannot fit between the, the, the ears of anyone. There can be some measurement. And so when we're measuring and learning something pragmatic about life, but in all the measurements and all the descriptions of matter in the scientific community that there are today, there's so much missing. Like us, we're missing. Consciousness is missing. It doesn't fit into any of the descriptions. That's a huge uh, problem. I mean, it's huge, huge <laughs> so, big problem. So, that's a big problem, too. So, forgive me. So, so to, to, so you, you, it cannot be, it cannot be measured. He says, I'll try to tell you something about it. And then he goes on to explain something. Um, we've talked about that. But, um, but it can't be, can't be, uh, grasped. Uh, and so to try to do so, hmm, in a comprehensive sense, not in a pragmatic sense. We all do that in a pragmatic sense. We experiment, we find, we get, we get some data and we, you know, we touch the fire, it burns us, we get the data, and we decide, don't touch fire, it burns. That's science, basically. It's, it's not any more glorious or spectacular or 
mysterious than that, really. Um, but <laughs> to try to measure the whole thing, to bring it within, and to control it, hmm? we want to control the situation. That's Maya. It's out of our control. No, that, that doesn't mean it's uncontrolled. To, to meet the controller is the idea in the uh, in the Vedanta, and so so the sounds hmm? so of the world they're embedded in the world, and and then there are the sounds that can uh, how you say um, deconstruct and unravel the world for an individual. Hmm? And Rupa Goswami said it like this. He said, of the sounds of the Upanishads that are aimed at unraveling the world, like Tattvamasi, Hambarmasmi, Neti, Neti, he said, these sounds, they're like jewels, which are luminous, give off light, and but all of their light, the rays of the lights, of the sounds of the Upanishads, are all focusing on one sound made of two syllables. Krishna, anabhrati shabdat, anabhrati shabdat. The sutras end like this. Going there, transcending, one never returns. Going there, one never returns. So says the subda, so says the sound. And it may also be interpreted something like this. Going there, because of the sound, one never returns, or by way of the sound. And this is the sound, Krishna Nam. It's the most efficacious, if you will, hmm? sound. And I cited Jiva Goswami the other night, Dure Harikatamrita, Shrotam Apiyopanashadam, Dure Harikatamritam. The, the extent that means to say that you can transcend the, the, the material existence by the sounds of the Shruti hmm, is exceeded by the sound of the holy name of Krishna, who arguably is the the source of the Shruti, which is Apurusheya, not uh, invented by humans, not authored by humans. Hmm? And therefore, because this is the idea of the Shruti, although books like the Bhagavad Gita, which is coming to our main books in our lineage, or the Srimad Bhagavatam. Although they were, they are of a different genre than the Shruti, they're called the Smriti. So Shruti means having heard the sounds, and then who's heard them is recording them, and therefore the Upanishads have different names that are, that are identified with either the author, who's not the author, but who heard them, um, re- recorder of them, or the deity of that sage, something like that. Um, Upanishad may be named after, after them. So these are the, this is the Shruti, the Veda, and the the wisdom section of the Veda is the is the Upanishads. Hmm? Then you have the another genre of sacred text called the called the, the Smriti, and Smriti means like remembered. So it's it constitutes literature that is a reflection on the Shruti hmm, by qualified persons who then explains the Shruti in a different way. As I said, the Shruti speaks like a king. This morning we were talking, the Puranas speak like a friend. 
tell stories and in the context of the stories give lessons and so forth. So, However, hmm, relative to your question, the Gita and the Bhagavatam, which are the central, are in many respects, uh, Bhagavatam in particular, central books for us. Um, let's talk about the Gita first. The Gita is, uh, Bhagavad Gita, its theological sequel is the Bhagavatam. Hmm? Uh, it kind of lays the, the ground and, uh, and, uh, it's kind of the, the intelligence of the Absolute and the Bhagavad is the life of the Absolute. So if you have you if your intelligence becomes directed by the Gita, you can enter into the life of the Absolute, something like that. Now the Gita is part of the the, the Smriti literature, Itihasa, the Purana. Hmm. It's a section of the Mahabharat, right? Um, important section. The whole book, real value is is found in that uh, section of the book, in the, the Mahabharata, the, the, in, in the Gita, right? Take the Gita out of the Mahabharat, and then it's uh, it's uh, not going to be famous. Uh, so this is this Bhagavad Gita is, in one sense, technically a Smriti and not a Shruti, and therefore not a Purusheya. Hmm? But it's spoken by Krishna at the time of his incarnation. Is the idea right? Hmm? And therefore. It's also sometimes called Gita Upanishad. Upanishads are Shruti. Hmm? So the Gita can be considered Shruti because it's spoken by Krishna, who's the, who's the non-human author, if you will, hmm? whose sounds, which includes the sounds of the world, which is part of him, his Maya Shakti and so forth, that are have no beginning. Hmm. The idea is something like the, the, that the, the, the world has no beginning. In Hinduism, the world manifests and becomes unmanifest in these cycles. These cycles have no beginning, and therefore the cycles are compared to the breathing of Vishnu. Breathing, Vishnu has no beginning, God has no beginning, so his breathing has no beginning either. So the world cycles have no beginning. They come and go, come and go. This is called anadi, without beginning. Hmm? And what the world consists of is matter and consciousness what com- what what connects them is called karma hmm? the world has no be- vishnu has no beginning the world has no beginning means matter maya shakti the atma the jiva the unit of consciousness for example the units of consciousness that we are have no beginning hmm? and that which connects those jivas and matter well, karma, it cannot have a beginning either because there's no meaning to the material world without karma. Material world means a world where jivas and matter are um, in a relationship uh, by the force of karma. So you, you can't, if the world has no beginning, the world cycles, then karma can have no beginning. The jivas have no beginning. Vishnu has no beginning. So... It's a long time we've been around. Hmm. And so, um, so there's no beginning to the world, and it's a Shakti, one of the energies of God. Like we are a different Shakti. We have no beginning. God is, is, God is the person God and God's Shaktis. Just like, um, 
we are all people and we all have energy by which we accomplish things, do things, and so forth. And if we know about a person's Shakti, we kind of know about them. We could know them. I know that person. I've heard of him. But I know him or her because she's an author, she's a musician, she does this, he does that. And that's done or accomplished by their Shakti. So knowing a person's Shakti is a comprehensive way of, 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 of knowing them, if you will. So... So the Shaktis of Bhagavan have no beginning, and, and, and God has a sound, if you will. Hmm? And so the different aspects of the God have, have sounds. This is another way of talking about which are Purusheya and so forth. Hmm? And, um, and so he is the non-human author of the sounds of the world and beyond. Hmm? different types of sounds. And when he speaks the Gita, well, then you have a non-human authored uh, text. Therefore, while the Gita is in the genre of the Smriti rather than the Shruti, at the same time, it's often spoken of as a Shruti because it's spoken by Krishna. And the Bhagavatam, Srimad Bhagavatam, Shruti Sarva Mekam, it is said there. Is the, the essence of the Shruti. So it's also, um, from a technical point of view, it's part of the Smriti, but if we look at it in another way, it could, it has been described by itself and by other Puranas as the essence of the, um, Shruti. Shruti Saram. Saram means like cream, the cream of the milk of the Upanishads. Um, so then you take, uh, you know, books that have been canonized, if you will, by by us, uh, uh, have become our scriptural canon. The works of the Goswamis, that are the founders, uh, founding Acharyas of the Sampradaya, books like Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, The Ocean of Bhakti Rasa, Brihat uh, Bhagavatamrita, the immortal, the great and immortal nectar of the Bhagavatam. Uh, the, the Sandarbhas of, of, of Jiva Goswami, the Chaitanya Charit Amrita, the immortal the, the nectarian character of, of consciousness and its prospects. Hmm? A book not just about the difference between matter and consciousness, but the prospect of consciousness unfettered by matter. Very extraordinary idea personified as the, that as that prospect is in the person of Sri Krishna Chaitanya. Sriman Mahaprabhu Ki Jai. Hmm? Uh, so these are our books. They're our uh, Shastra, our, our Shabda. Technically, they're not Shruti, hmm, as you're thinking about it, but um, they um, distill the essence of the sounds in the Puranas, the Smriti, the Bhagavatam, the Gita, and so forth, especially the Bhagavatam, hmm? which this is more f- focused on, and um, and and make that the essence, essential message, meaning, teaching of those texts ex- more readily accessible to us, not only um, by well by by way of drawing out from them the bhagavatam from the bhagavatam for example things that are there that would be difficult to access hmm? if if at all 
accessible on one's own. Therefore, the commentarial tradition for hundreds of years, this is very, very valuable, and it needs to continue hmm, in an ongoing way, in new time and circumstance, to keep the teaching alive and to continue to explore a subject in the school of which everyone is a student forever. And that includes Krishna. Krishna himself is a student of the Bhagavatam. Hmm? This is explained in Chaitanya Charitamrita. So what's been understood by Krishna Das Kaviraj about the Bhagavatam and how valuable is his, his company when he says that Amishisha, uh, Gurunata, Radhikar, Premerun, Mata relative to the subject of Radha Tattva that we've been talking about. Krishna says, I'm the, I'm the Shishya, I'm the disciple. In the dancing of Radha, that is my guru. Her love drives me mad. Hmm? I'm learning from her how to dance. Hmm? It was that uh, European philosopher N- 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 Nietzsche who said, if there was a god, he'd be a dancer. Hmm? <laughs> and we say, he is and he's got a guru. <laughs> Whoa! God's got a guru. So we can't complain about having one. It's a good thing. He's, he, he does it himself, right? Hmm? And, it's, and, it's a, and it's a woman. <laughs> goodness, goodness! <laughs> what, a, what greater precedent could you have than that? Hmm? And he's learning from her how how to dance, and learning from her what what is love, hmm? and that is the whole teaching of the Bhagavatam: hmm? how to love, how to become a lover. That's the subtitle of the book, Srimad Bhagavatam: How to Become a Lover. Hmm? And it's very much in contrast, of course, in the way how we do live our lives, unfortunately, because we are all takers rather than givers, and love is about giving, not taking. So and the reason we're takers, of course, very briefly, is that because we are in an oppressed condition, oppressed by the demands of our senses, oppressed by the demands of our minds, and as a result, we're uh, serving those masters which are insatiable in terms of their appetite, hmm? to rehash whatever is out there. Hmm? We sense objects and, and thoughts and go over them and so forth. And there's nev- they're never ending in this regard. Hmm? And so to satisfy them is a, is a very um, almost impossible task. Hmm? It keeps us busy. And, and because we've identified with, with the, the, the wild, the call of the wild, if you will, the senses... And 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 thoughts about matter. Uh, we think that our prospect in life lies within matter, and so we are in a kind of wanton, and, uh, unfulfilled um, condition. And therefore, as we know psychologically, for example, it's not a good time to to pursue a relationship if your whole idea in having a relationship is that guy is going to fix me. Hmm. That's not that you're not playing playing your you, you've got a role to play in there. It doesn't quite work like that. Um, so you, you, you're it's 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 we, we're taught that you should become a little bit more full in yourself. Hmm. Hmm. And 
in the context of that, have a relationship. Hmm. Um, so, to love and to give, one has to be full. Hmm. And as long as we're in a wanton position, driven by the demands of our senses, which we're identifying with, that are never satisfied, then our capacity to love is is inhibited, limited. Hmm? Um, so, we're on the take. At least there's the hunters and the hunted. And we may feel that we're being hunted. And not long ago I was giving a, a, a talk and a fellow, uh, something along these lines, and he said, well, what about, you know, they're doing this and they're doing that and they this and they that and the corporate conglomerate and uh, they're doing this and they're doing that and and they are, that's true. But I said, what about that? I said, what you have to understand is you are they. You are no different than they. You are the they. Hmm? On another lever, all, level, albeit, not in, this, in a gross and a crude way, but if you had all the resources, you might be, you're just as much of an animal too. <laughs> you're as much, we are all, materially speaking, in a situation where we can't, we can't be relied upon, we can't be trusted. Hmm? Hmm? We, 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 in other words, we have motives, we, we have needs. Hmm? We have needs, so we're, we're, we're on the take. We're hunting. We're being hunted, that's true. If you look over your shoulder, but if you look ahead, someone's looking over their shoulder at you. Hmm. And you're taking. So it's, it, it, Bhagavatam says, Jivo Jivasya Jivanam. One living being is food for another. It's a very Darwinian kind of perspective. Of course, it doesn't leave it there. It, it, it gives offers a solution to that problem. Hmm. How how one can survive through acts of kindness. Hmm? Something like that. Hmm. Um, by giving, one can grow. This is the secret of life. It doesn't look like that. If you give, you will get, but mystery of this is, is that you do. So the Bhagavatam is trying, it's trying to tame wild animals, number one. Train, tame, this is the moral life. Moral life means to live in a cage, hmm? to be taken from the wild and put in a cage. Hmm? That's the moral life. This is the low, low end of the religious uh, spectrum, the moral life. And then you put a little bit of food in. <laughs> Say please. Hmm? <laughs> Say thank you. Huh? You get another one. Something like that. So this is the general, like, religious uh, perspective. Hmm? If I do this, I'll get that. Okay, I'm learning to be polite. I'm learning to come out of the wild where I can just take, as I, uh, as, 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 as I perceive needed or feel and so forth. And so the moral life is to live in a cage. Therefore, you can understand the moral life, this, this um, level or uh, perspective on what religion and spirituality constitutes is not the goal. To live in a cage is not the goal. Hmm? And we see the wildlife, this is another point as an aside, and we think, I'd like to be like that. <laughs> the freedom that they seem to have. Hmm? 
freedom. It's attractive. Hmm? So it has to be understood in context. But th th we want the freedom that they appear to have, that they actually don't have. Hmm? Hmm? So if you take them and you put them in a cage, you chain them down. Hmm? But now we have to go to the other side. We've got to get out of the cage and be wildly in love. Hmm? Wildly in love. And cast reason aside, gyan shunya bhakti, put it in its place, knowledge gets in the way, hmm? something like that. But we have to pass through the moral life, we have to get a, a ticket to get out of the, the cage, hmm? and have knowledge of what our prospect is, and then how to, how to live in the world and not be of the world, something like that. How to be a giver. It requires knowing oneself, transcending the oppressions of the mind and the senses. Then we're at, proportionately, we're in a position to love, to give. Hmm? So the Bhagavatam, this is the subtitle, How to Become a Lover. Hmm? And it's talking to people who should, who, who should be humans, talking to humans, who should be more tame than the than the, than the beasts but unfortunately they're sometimes more dangerous than the four-legged beasts dvipada pashu two-legged animals with intelligence and if that intelligence is not directed by the sounds by the gita with spiritual intel intellect intellect is the driver of the chariot of the body the reins are the mind, and the five horses pulling it are the senses. We're the passenger. So the intellect has to be arrested. And the mind, the reins can be held, and the horses can take us somewhere worth going instead of just running wild. I mean, you don't want to be in a chariot with the horses running wild. There's no driver. When there, No driver means that the intelligence has been compromised by the mind and the senses, by their demands. Hmm? Because intelligence is, is, is said to be, the measure of it we find in human society is said to distinguish it from the less complex forms of life. Hmm? If they have less intelligence, then they are more sensually and physically oriented in terms of their ambitions, necessities, goals, and so forth. So if the measure of human intelligence distinguishes us from less complex forms of life, but we only use the intelligence for the same thing that the animals are pursuing without the need of more intelligence, then our intelligence has been compromised by the mind and the senses. It's been controlled by the mind and senses. It's become now... In, complicit in 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 the thievery of the mind and and, and the senses. This is it becomes now a very dangerous thing, hmm? because now you're an animal with animal pursuits only, hmm? sense indulgence, let us say, and you're using the vehicle of uh, the power of uh, in the tool of intelligence to do that. Intelligence is not for that. Hmm? It's for discriminating. Hmm? And distinguishing between the fact that I'm a more complex form of life, they're less complex forms of life, I should be doing something 
more complex. Hmm? Not just doing what the animals do in a bigger, in a more glorified way, raising families and providing food and and whatever we 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 do in our sensual um, pursuits and so forth. Intelligence is used for discrimination, and and ultimately, then the idea in Vedanta is to be able to discriminate between consciousness and matter, hmm? and therefore realize what matters. It's us, not consciousness. It only matters if we matter about it. Hmm? So again, we move to the idea that the physical world is not the real world, the subjective world. Hmm? In the meditative world, this is the real world, where the, where, con- where, the, where the we live in a mental world, mental-emotional world, that's where we live. Hmm? But the, again, I said earlier, the mental-emotional world is only what it is because it's reflecting consciousness. So consciousness itself has emotive power and life, and uh, it's, 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 it's entirely experiential. This is huge. The difference between an experiential reality and a non-experiential reality is like the difference between night and day. Hmm? We are a unit of experiencing reality, how different we are from matter that is, that is experienced. Hmm? And don't think that experience comes out of inexperience or non-experience. Out of a non-experiencing reality, don't think one day all of a sudden it'll start to think. Hmm? We we kind of chuckle at that idea. If a pool ball would say, hey, can you put a little chalk on the stick? That one hurt. <laughs> but that's modern science. Material, The materialistic perspective of, of much of modern science. That's what it's basically saying. That matter at a certain point starts to experience. Hmm? No. Experience doesn't come out of non-experience. We are a unit of experiencing reality, and that is a huge thing. If I was to be asked, what is the greatest experience you've had that I experience, that's a lot to digest in itself. I'm different from matter. There are whole traditions of, of Vedanta that stop right there and are silent. It's such a big, it's, it's, a big, it's too big of a thought even to fit between the ears. I'm different from matter. Om. Peace at last. Hmm? Matter's constantly in flux. The show's always changing. It looked like that. I chased it. It turned into something else. Uh, I can't ever get any firm ground to stand on. It's like musical chairs and you're out. Hmm? Another life. and This is a problem. Hmm? And all I want is the peace. Some peace. Some firm ground to stand on. Hmm? I'm, I'm living in an earthquake zone. It's problematic. The ground is shifting. Hmm? And then the thought is, how do you know the ground is shifting? In order to know that the, earth, the ground is shifting, you have to be different from it. Hmm? Because you can you can know that it's it's moving and changing. It implies that that, that you're not. You're observing the change. You are the ground of being. What about that? Hmm? That's a big, like, that's like beyond thought. That that stops the mind. Hmm? Now we have to start it again in a spiritual way. So 
you are the ground of being. You are a unit of the ground of being. Hmm? And now, in, in, in the bhakti school, we want to teach how to dance on the ground of being. Hmm? How's that? You got firm ground. Now you're going to just sit there. Now you can. Now you can. To Leela is different. It, 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 the karmic realm, there's movement. We're trying to deal with the fact that the ground's moving. <laughs> Whoa! I came over here. Now it's the sinkhole. Now I've got to go over there, and it's it's got. So the reverse is there in 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 bhakti. You're standing on the ground that's being. So the ground is still. Hmm? Now you can move freely, not out of necessity that you have to move, because the ground is moving. Uh-oh. So karma means we have to move. We've taken, and now we owe. So off to work we go. Hmm? It's obligatory work. Leela is non-obligatory work. It's the Karma is movement out of unfulfilled life, hmm? out of want. Hmm? And Leela is movement out of love, out of fullness. So love is a movement also, right? It said we, we cannot sit still, we cannot rest until we find love. And what happens when you find love? Rest is over. <laughs> a short stop. I found love. Ah, but then it has an orbit of its own, right? Hmm? We want to be in that in that orbit with its ups and its downs. Hmm? With Sambhog and Viraha, uh, Vipralamba, union and separation, high and low tide of love, of uh, wise love, centered on the perfect objects of love, Krishna. And this is then to learn to dance on the ground of being. Hmm? It's a very extraordinary idea because, as I said, just the idea that I am consciousness, not matters. Is, if you understand it properly, it'll stop your mind. You will be. It will be very difficult for you to continue your life. Hmm? Pursuit of of the of the firm ground and enduring life and happiness in relation to things that don't endure, that are here today and gone tomorrow. Attachment to which is the source of misery, as the Buddha said. Hmm? Goodness. Life is ruined. <laughs> now I have to sit. Hmm? That's a huge uh, lesson. And then now to talk about, let's dance. Like, whoa, where are we, where are we going here? This is so. I've given another example in in, in in one of my books. Karmic life is like negative numbers. Hmm? You're in negative numbers. If from negative numbers you could come to zero, that zero is positive in relation to negative numbers. Hmm? And zero is so different than the negative numbers. Hmm? So, to understand that consciousness is not matter, and to get out of the karmic predicament, stop being a taker, stop taking. There's meditative schools, disciplines for to stop taking. Stop taking is like part of loving. It's not the whole thing, right? If you give, well, you don't take, you know, okay. But then giving is something more. So to come from negative numbers to zero is to stop taking, to be peaceful. Zero, it's very different than the, in negative numbers there's movement. In zero there's peace. There's no negativity. 
sounds positive. <laughs> There's no negativity. It's kind of a negative positivity. <laughs> um, you know, very Buddhist, if you will. Hmm? So, appropriately so. So, now, the question is, and it's a big question, and who would think of it? The Bhagavad has thought of this question. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has thought of this question. Having arrived at zero, he says, are there any positive numbers? And some people say, hey, man, like, we just learned numbers are bad. You know, <laughs> that's a whole problem. Let's take it easy. Let's not. But I mean, with the plus in front of them. So the movement in Leela, one, positive one, positive two, positive three, looks more like negative one, negative two, negative three, than it looks like zero. Hmm? Leela, when depicted artistically, even when speaking about, spoken about philosophically, if it's not done well enough, it kind of sounds like karma. Krishna Leela looks like ordinary life, but it's got a di one difference. It's got a plus in front of the number instead of a zero, hmm? instead of a minus sign. And, and there are a billion, trillion, and eight <laughs> positive numbers. It, it, prem, love, is full and ever-expanding at the same time. So again, in this school, we're all students forever. Even Krishna is a student. Hmm? Hmm? Love is the teacher. Then hmm? that is Radha. Hmm? So these are the sounds we want to hear. <laughs> These are the, uh, this is the imp import of the unauthored sounds as explained by the Goswamis. And their texts, mm, they're not technically Shruti, but they're living in sound that is Krishnanam and, and then explaining the Shruti, the Smriti, Prana, Itihasas in ways that we could never access them unto our unto our unto ourselves. So the tradition of commentary is so important to us. We have the sacred texts, they are like a passive agent of divinity, and then we have sadhus, saints, they're active agents of divinity. So you can read the book. Hmm? Have you read my, any of my books? Okay. <laughs> so then I can say, did you understand this? Right. The book can't ask you that. The book can be helpful, no doubt. Hmm? But the book can't ask you, so did you understand that? But the sadhu can. He can go after you. She can go after you and say, so did you understand? What did you understand? Hmm? So the sadhu is an, he or she is an active agent of divinity, and the text is a passive agent of divinity. So therefore, Kaviraj Goswami in Chaitanya Charitamrita says, in order to arrive at bhakti rasa, the, the, at the, of the, hmm, the, at least he says, bhakti rasa. You need two things. You need the book Bhagavat, which is the hub around which all the sacred texts orbit and will be understood in, in context, in relation to. Hmm? Hmm? This is an important point, Srimad Bhagavatam. You need the book Bhagavatam, which means you need revelation. You need, there's a way of, we have instruments for knowing, tools for knowing. Our senses, empirically, we, we know things. And we, we know also by reasoning about things we experience with the senses. But these instruments, senses and reasoning, unto themselves, cannot give us perfect knowledge. Hmm? 
they can give us maybe perfect knowledge about some aspect of nature, but about the nature of being and reality as a whole, that's not possible. You need another way of knowing. This is the way. Perfection, perfect knowledge needs requires a perfect method for knowing. The perfect method is if perfection seeks to reveal itself to the imperfect, then the imperfect can know perfectly. Hmm? The infinite has infinite capacity. So while it's not possible for the finite to know the infinite, if the infinite wants the finite to know, then the finite can do something that unto itself it could not. Out of infinity's infinite capacity, it can it can do the impossible. So it can make itself known to the finite. Hmm? So how do we how do we this is how you this is how you get that. <laughs> you have to fold your hands, you have to you say you have to acknowledge I don't know and and that I need a trans rational way of knowing. Hmm? A way that's not irrational, but that transcends the limits of knowing that can be afforded by reason unto itself. Hmm? All these meditative practices, kirtanas, these are transrational practices. They're not unreasonable to practice, but they begin again and pick up where reason leaves off. And they come from the shruti, the smriti, from these sacred texts, the shabda, these sounds, these directives, go in this way, do like this understand this point. Hmm? Hmm? And so, uh, it, for example, chanting is not a rational exercise. It's not irrational to chant Krishna's name, but the exercise itself is not a rational one. It's a transrational one. Hmm? And it can afford us a kind of knowing that transcends the limits of, 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 of reason, as love does. Love knows no reason. Hmm? A reason calculated life is a is one where we proceed with caution. Hmm? If you're at home and your husband cooks a nice dinner for you and offers it to you, you don't say, Can I check the ingredients first? <laughs> but if you're in a foreign country or something or you're in a supermarket, you want to check the ingredients for sure. You know, so you're proceeding with caution, but at home you move freely hmm? because it's a loving environment. There's, there's no need for that filter of precaution of intelligence. Vrindavan, Krishna Leela, is this kind of free movement of the heart, unencumbered by thinking, hmm? loving, jnana chunya bhakti. Reason has been retired. Not retired, but it's taken on another role. It doesn't ask whether or not to serve, but how to serve in every instance, how to best serve. So intelligence is most beautiful when it becomes an, an ornament of faith. Faith means, in this context, the removal of doubt. And if you doubt, then suspicion leads to suspension. We have doubt. We, we're going to be suspended. Our, anima- our animation will be suspended. Therefore, in the Gita, Krishna says, "A person is their faith." Hmm? What is the verse? Shraddhayam purusha. Person is their faith. Hmm? So, faith is mo- by faith we are moving. 
Hmm? If we don't have faith in something, we don't do it. We don't think it's going to work. Hmm? It's it's animating us. So to the extent that we're we're proceeding with caution and everything we do before we do it is filtered through the through the intellect, then then we're not living entirely in a land of faith where there's no where intellect is only ornamenting the faith. You see, intellect is, is, is not a suitable vehicle for apprehending the entirety of the truth. It's a fence-sitting affair. Hmm? Faith is actually, implies movement. Hmm? You can, in other words, you can sit on the fence and analyze whether the grass is greener on the other side. It looks greener. Hmm? But as long as you're on the fence, then you never know. Hmm? When you jump off the fence and jump the fence and go into greener pastures and taste the grass, then you know and you can just moo back at everybody else. <laughs> now I know. Hmm, moo. <laughs> hmm. So, so you know, intellect is, you know, you have this empirical and rational, rationalist, empiricism, rationalism, and so forth, these popular ideas of knowing from our perspective. These, these are ways of knowing something, but not arriving at comprehensive knowing, and they're defective for in, in terms of that pursuit. Hmm? And this is a reasonable idea. Hmm? It's reasonable that there, there are things that we might no, not be able to know on the strength of, the, of our present instruments. And what the prayer is, if you will, or the transrational practices is to go, is to go beyond the limits of our own instruments and seek help from beyond our own limited strength. Hmm? So, I've given a statement before, I mean, another way to look at it is, if you love someone, they'll tell you all the secrets. In love there are no secrets. So bhakti is a, is a loving approach to, to understanding reality. And the idea is that by loving, hmm, then nothing will be unknown to you. Hmm? Nothing worth knowing will be unknown to you. What is essentially worth knowing, that will be known, understood. Hmm? So, it's a very nice, nice idea. Positive, to go into the realm of positive numbers. Hmm? So this is the subtitle of Srimad Bhagavatam. Srimad Bhagavatam, How to Be a Lover. Hmm? Something like that. Hmm? And there is the Radha and Krishna setting the example with 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 uh, with um, how you say um, assisting roles, hmm? supporting. supporting roles as well. Very important. <laughs> supporting roles, without which it couldn't couldn't take place. Hmm? So that's a big subject. But uh, so. That's the answer. <laughs> yes. Marsh, um, there are several new people here. Some of them. I'm I'm pretty new myself, so don't feel. <laughs> well, they've just yeah heard of the the Maha Mantra Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Mm-hmm. for the first time. Some of them just this week. Some of them within the last month, and they're here tonight. Is there is there a simplified way for you to explain? What the Maha Mantra is for them? Well, um, I'm a kind of a complicated person. 
No, I'm really not. It's, it's, it's a complicated for me to explain how simple I am. That's what it, <laughs> what it is. But, uh, but yes, of course, um, the uh, mantra, of course, man means mind and tra means to deliver. So there are sounds, formulas that, that can deliver us uh, from the mind. Hmm? And the mind uh, is worth being delivered from. If you live in your own mind, you, you want to get away from it half the time anyway, right? The mind is a very small world that we live in, and we very unreasonably expect everybody else to be comfortable within it, hmm? when it's not comfortable for us, even. So that's a very unreasonable proposal. So uh, so to break down the, the, the idea, you want to know what the maha mantra means, so we'll start with the word mantra. So mantra, so to free oneself from the limits of the mind. In the mind, we get information, so to speak, from the senses about the nature of the world, and then we make determinations in the mind. I like this, I don't like that, this is good, this is bad, this is happy, this is sad. And we're living in a world of dualities, of good and bad, happiness and sad, and we're at odds with one another. For you it may be cold, for me it may be hot. So, problem. It's neither one. Those readings are the mind's readings and interpretations of sensual input. And all of our senses are somewhat different and provide different input. Hmm? So, this mental world that each of us lives in is in, each is in their own not-so-sovereign domain. Hmm? And one extent or another, we're warring with one another. So, but we want unity, and the idea is that you will get unity by being delivered from the world of your mind, the small world. Hmm? Now, we're a little comfortable in that small world because we, the mind allows us to think that we're big and that we're the center, hmm? but we're small. Now we may think, I don't know if I want to come out of the mind and be small, but the idea is that outside of the world of mind, yes, you, you're small, but there's somebody that's big, and he comes into the picture and he's very friendly. Hmm? So it's okay to be small if you've got a big friend. Hmm? You understand? <laughs> That's, it's, it, trying to be big when you're actually small is a big problem. Hmm? But when you, if you can be small but have a big friend, then life is so much easier. Hmm? So the mantra here is called the Maha Mantra. So Maha means great. So the great sound, hmm, the mantra is a sound formula, by which you will be comprehensively, the idea is great in a big way, delivered from the world of the mind. Delivered from the world of the mind by way of taking you out of the small world of the mind and bringing you into the big world hmm, where dealings are friendly. Because the world of the mind is not, not a friendly place. We're at odds, as I said, with one another. Hmm? So that's what it means to have in a big way to come out. Because I could just take you out, but I'm out of the mind, now what? Hmm? So into another realm, in the friendly realm, the loving realm. So, that realm, hmm, that is what the, the words of the mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. They are, in essence, those words talking about that place. Hmm? So these are names, Krishna, Krishna is a name, name of Krishna. <laughs> K- 
Krishna is the name of the of the deity that is the heart of divinity, like Buddha is the wisdom of the divinity. Christ is like the sacrificing uh, manifestation of divinity. Krishna is the romantic heart of the absolute. Hmm? It's a charming idea, hmm? and and and. Another name for Krishna, this is, there are different ways to explain it, but I'll, I'll give one way. Another, um, and that relative to our the topic we've been discussing about Radha this weekend, another name in the mantra is Ram. So Ram is another name for Krishna in this context, which means it, it speaks, uh, it's a name that speaks about actually um, the uh, uh, the joy of, of romanticism. Hmm? Hmm? Ram. Hmm? Krishna means all attractive. It speaks about the idea that there's an object of love that's all attractive, that, that can take all the love that we could give, hmm? digest it, and transform it as the stomach does and send energy to all parts of the body. Hmm? So Krishna is, is all attractive, is the idea. that There must be a center. We are attracted here and there to one extent or another. Hmm? But our source is actually all attractive if we could focus. So Krishna is all attractive. It means the perfect object of love, perfectly capable of reciprocating love in kind, in all measure, of all varieties. Hmm? So Krishna. And then Rams, in this context, says something about him. Hmm? He's, he's the perfect object of love himself, itself, himself is... Is a is a pursuer of love, a connoisseur of love, hmm? a romanticist. Hmm? He is Krishna, Ram, and Hare. Hmm? Hare means it's the vocative of 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 hmm, of we can say, of Hare, but also of um, hara, so relative to the topic we've been discussing over the weekend, in this context, the name Hare in the mantra is a name for Radha. Now we have Krishna, we have Radha, so we have all attractive object of love, and we have Radha, who is the personification of the perfect love, the personification of bhakti. Hmm? Hmm. There's a little Radha in every devotee, something like that. Hmm? So the mantra speaks about the all-attractive Krishna, who's a who's a romanticist, hmm? and about the love that corresponds with himself, who's the object of love. So if you have object of love, you need the love too. The two correspond. It's like you need a, to be a teacher. You have to have students. To be a student, you have to have a teacher. Students and teachers are different, but they're one. You can't have one without the other. So you can't have Krishna without Radha. You can't have Krishna without love of Krishna. Hmm? Hmm? So and, and, and so Radha personifies the perfection of loving Krishna. So in a sense, the mantra takes us out of the small world of our mind, brings us in the big world, hmm? where the perfect uh, ideal of love is personified and showing the way to love the perfect object of love. And so it's a mantra that delivers us from the small and narrow world 
a kind of mean-spirited world of our mind and uh, takes us into another realm of love. How's that? That's a brief explanation. Yes, sir. So, when one's consciousness becomes enlightened, one knows that essentially the ego mind is faulted, errored, corrupted, and the heart itself is truth, it's sacred, and trustworthy. Is it completely reasonable for one to isolate the mechanisms of judgment, discretion, and calculation in making decisions and choices in her life and completely just rely on intuition and instincts basically go with it feels right rather than no you don't do that if you are enlightened then you're you don't you, you you know how to use tools rather than be used by tools it's not good to be used by your tools that could be a problem your chainsaw could cut off your leg or something like that. So, for example, so uh, you, you, but tools can be used. So, booty, intelligence, mind, senses, and so forth. These are only as problematic as they're using us rather than being used by us. Hmm? So, um, an enlightened person in this realm is, for example, a person who speaks really the language of love. Hmm? in order to communicate that in this world, we'll have to translate it into the language of reason and make a reasonable presentation about the nature of love that requires the exercise of discrimination. So in bhakti, we use our intelligence, we use our mind, we use our senses hmm, in the service of Krishna. We're not denying them. They have a role. Now the role is that they've taken over our life just like a t- television, it requires you to turn it on, but it could take over your life, right? would be a problem. But you could also use it as a tool. Hmm? Tune in the right show at the right time and turn it off before the commercial or something. <laughs> yeah. so, so all things have their application, something like that. So there's a way, again, to live in the world but not be of the world, which means to use all the tools that you have. Hmm? While they're limited unto themselves for arriving at comprehensive truth, they still have application. I'm using discrimination and reason here to, to discuss. Hmm? I'm trying to translate my feelings into logical presentation to appeal to your intellect enough that it could be arrested and I could, they could steal my way into, into your heart and bring about some, some change. So, so, okay, that's the answer. All right, yes. Um, when she spoke yesterday about fundamentalism and orthodoxy and then I, I also um, just heard in a conversation today sometimes we read Prabhupada's books and there's sometimes ex- I guess it, it, maybe it's not extreme sometimes things sound extreme like if Mar- if Prabhupada says you know you have to practice 100% full devotional service or you're a two-legged animal right you mentioned that earlier just now mm-hmm. so how can we understand these things so that you know, so we're maybe we're not discouraged if we know I'm not, I'm not 100%. You know, like, so what, you know, where, where do I stand then? Because otherwise I'm just a two-legged animal. Yeah, well, that's the difference between uh, uh, having the 
the, the capacity to understand the text and having and not having that capacity and just r- reading it literally and and so so you have to understand the spirit of the words the spirit there's the letter of the law they say and then there's the spirit of the law so to be an essential spiritualist you have to understand the spirit of the law and the directive so for example you you give an example there are statements like that in the sacred texts hmm? i'll give an opposite example um that um that if you chant Hare Krishna even in your sleep, hmm, you'll become enlightened. Okay? So someone can say, cool, I'm going to take rest now. I'll be chanting all night. You know, this, is, this, this is great. This sounds like a real easy way to go. Those statements, the spirit behind them is if the chanting is so powerful that simply by chanting in your sleep you could become perfect, how perfect you'll become if you chant attentively, pay attention. That's the spirit of it. It's not a statement that's promoting just chant in your sleep. Here's the easy way to do it, you know. Hmm? Or it's basically saying uh, it, if, if running and, and falling and paying attention to something else and chanting, still it will be efficacious. So some think, okay, well, I don't have to pay attention to the chanting. It's going to be efficacious. That's not the teaching there. That's not the spirit of what's being said. It's, it, it's a what to speak of. If you do it like that, hmm? if you pay attention to do it, what would be the results? It's meant to say to you, just see the power of this mantra. Goodness, I should pay attention to that. Wow, it can do that. Therefore, I, I, I should really, it, it, it's been given to me. I should take advantage of it. See, that's the difference between understanding the spirit of what's being said and taking advantage of it and misunderstanding it and distorting the whole thing. And that's why the books and even the commentaries of the Purvacharyas, previous Acharyas, previous teachers in the lineage have to be understood in the present context with good guidance and so forth. So, right, I was saying earlier, to get the taste of Bhakti Rasa, you need the book... And you need the person, the book Bhagavatam and the person Bhagavatam. Mm-hmm. And of course, in time, you, be, you start to become a person Bhagavatam yourself, and then you can you can understand it, the spirit of it. And so, um, does that help? Yeah. yeah, that's kind of the 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 idea. And also, you know, Prabhupada, my grandma, she spoke in a certain time, and within certain circumstances, with certain things in mind. If you study his books, you can see he's had certain foundational stones that he wanted to put in place, like what is Mayavad and how to avoid that and so forth. He make, makes opportunities to, to comment like that, even where the text is, isn't talking about it. You know, that's part of what he's doing in time and place, which is all perfect, but nonetheless is focused in the time and the place where he's present. Hmm? The whole idea of the parampara means you need a new ongoing teaching in new times to keep it alive and keep it relevant and and, and so forth. Not that the Purvacharya's teaching has no value, it has much value, but much of it is spoken or written in consideration of the time and the circumstance. There was a time when I was young and came in touch with this teaching where the level of the teaching was was much uh, broader and not as deep as I'm teaching myself. But I could not be teaching on a deeper level the teaching had I not 
taken advantage of the way in which it was presented at the time, hmm, which was all I could have digested at the time anyway. Hmm. So the expertise of the Acharyas is going to present according to time and circumstance. If, if I say Prabhupada gave a basic idea, someone says, that sounds offensive. Well, that's not offensive. It means he could he, he he brought himself from a higher plane down to speak in a way that was relative to the time and circumstance, and the results demonstrate that. Hmm? So there were great results. But to think now that the, the times are the same now as then, they're not. There are some things about them that are the same, and there are some things that are very different. There's new information, there's different currents of thought in the world, different insights about the world, which which there'll always be different insights about the nature of matter. Hmm? And then how to, how to address that and so forth, and understand that in relation to the teaching. That's why we need parampara, means one after another, another teacher, another teacher, another teacher, after the previous teacher has passed away. And the purvacharya can't be the present siksha guru. Hmm? He's a purvacharya. Let him be a purvacharya. Hmm? Let him go to Goloka. Don't make him try to st- still be here. That's, that's, that's not the, 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 the teaching. Hmm? And so, in some ways, Prabhupada spoke on a very, on a, on a basic level and gave a kind of a literal orientation to the text. There's a reason they did that, and largely the reason is because he wanted to distinguish what he was teaching from Mayavad, where everything, where Christian legally becomes, just disappears as, 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 as a myth, if you will, mm-hmm. of sorts. Um, because Jagat Mityam, Brahman Satyam, the whole world is a myth, and even Ishwar and Satvaguna is a myth, and from his perspective, and so forth. So, he wanted to avoid that, so he spoke in a certain way, and it was effective. If you keep speaking only in that way now, it will not be as effective. That's effective, that's why all of you are here. Most of you. Because <laughs> it wasn't effective. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't having the same effect. And would you say, well, if we cling to the literal, is that like also kind of fundamentalism? Not necessarily. What what, what is fundamentalism, as I speak about it, is is when you when when your your understanding of the text that may be literal and um, and so forth comes in conflict with the spirit of the text. Hmm? At first, you can't necessarily understand the spirit of the text, you've got to understand it literally, right? What it says, literally, you've got to get a handle on that. Hmm? In time, the text is supposed to continue to speak to you, right? And, and, and reveal itself on deeper and deeper levels, what are the import, what's the implication, and so forth. If, this is, if it's a subject that we're all students forever in, then that must be the dynamic, right? Hmm? So that means... If you're students forever, there's always a challenge to grow, to understand on a deeper level. Hmm? That's beautiful. Hmm? But when when we, you know, we 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 are adrift, we're lost, then we become found. Hmm? We join the the the, the 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 tradition, the lineage. You get initiated and so forth, and then you. Our tendency is to gravitate towards the fringe, not towards the center. Hmm? We got some experience by applying ourselves literally to the text, and it was otherworldly. So we have faith in the text, in the, in the, in the method, and so forth. Hmm? But then, the, 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 the spirit of the text, 
uh, someone may speak about it or it may, it may seek to reveal itself to us and then we become at odds with it because it's it's easier not to think and we want to let the, 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 the books all think for us and just, and, and this is where where the 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 time has come by the transcendental arrangement that you are supposed to progress in your understanding and now you're fighting with it just like you resisted joining in the first place as, as far as long as you could and then you couldn't hmm? And then now it's over. No, it's not over. See, see, because we're students forever. You have to grow, and so the challenge remains. And with good, good guidance, good teacher, and so forth, and affection, we can, we can grow. Hmm? But so when the literal orientation is not bad, it's good, it's useful, it's important. But when that when it becomes in conflict with that which is a progressive form of the same thing that now you're supposed to understand and embrace, then it then it becomes. A problem, you understand? Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Um, in the Bhagavatam, it's about the Leela where Krishna steals the Gopi of clothing. And it's described in the Bhagavatam that uh, Krishna Saka Shadam is there to assist Krishna. And I was wondering, this Leela seems kind of like an intimate leela with the gopis and so I was wondering if you could give some okay and because uh, Sridha is a Priya Saka <coughs> so I was wondering if you could give some illumination on where the dividing line is about that leela and uh, yeah the dividing <coughs> kind of leelas yeah, so the difference between Krishna's friends and Krishna's friends who are involved in his romantic life and the fact that Krishna's, some of Krishna's friends who are typically not involved in his romantic life are involved in the Gopi Vastaharana Leela where the Gopi's clothes are stolen, which is a, a romantic of sorts Leela, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the point is that the first of all, the leela is not quite a romantic leela. It's 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 uh, well, it is, and I guess you could say it's a it's a prelude to the uh, there. Krishna promises we'll we'll meet in the future and consummate the relationship that has been officially born today. Uh, it's a long story, but you, you know the story apparently. So the question you're asking is that Sridham is said by some of the acharyas to be one of the boys that's present there. Hmm? But the whole explanation of those boys that are present there is that they don't have any romantic sensibilities at the time. Hmm? And so Krishna's advanced for his age. He's mature for his age. So when he's 10, he thinks like a 16-year-old. Hmm? When Sridham is 10, he doesn't think like a 16-year-old, is the idea. So it was possible for them to be present, even though they're not typically involved in the romantic affairs and sensitive to them, because of his uh, lack of romantic sensibilities. Otherwise, you'd think, why wasn't a Priyanarmasaka there, Right? participate. 
but you can see the nature of their participation is they don't really participate. They think it's all a joke, hmm? and they're having quite a bit of fun and so forth, and and they're not they're not involved in helping to make it happen and sensitive to Krishna's romantic sensibilities and those of the gopis and sharing in them and part- they're not involved in that. They're kind of there because Krishna's out with some friends and so hmm, they happen upon the scene. The idea, of course, is that these are personifications, Sridham, Sudam, so forth, of his Antakarana. Hmm. And then they, that wherever that goes, he goes. But it goes, but and they are aware of it, but they are not moved to participate in it. Hmm? So their sakya rasa is not influenced by Madhurya rasa. The Priyanarma sakya has a desire for Madhurya rasa. Hmm? Now, how does that play out? It doesn't mean he wants to have a romantic relationship with Krishna. It means that that he's he sees the gopi's love, he's attracted to it because he sees how it affects Krishna, and he he wants to tender to Krishna's romantic necessities and and sensibilities as some friends do, hmm? and so that the priyanarma is unlike the priyasakas is influenced by a desire to have the empathetic capacity to serve Krishna in that way. That, uh, that, the, that, the, that the gopis do and, and somehow be part of that in the context of their sakya rasa. Therefore, if the, the rasa of sakya is like yogurt, then the, the influence of the, the madhuri is like, like sugar. Hmm? It's not, the yogurt doesn't turn into milk or something like that. The sakya doesn't turn into, into madhuriya. Hmm? But it's, it's, it's influenced by, so they're, they have a desire not for some bogue with Krishna, but but tadbhav, hmm? like the manjari, tadbhav. They don't want union with Krishna in a romantic sense. They want to participate in his romantic sensibilities in an, an auxiliary way, like the manjaris do. They don't directly participate in romantic life with Krishna, but they assist Radha. So these boys, they're assisting Krishna and Radha. Also, they're they're king cars of Radha. Also, hmm? right? So, that, does that help? Okay. Technical question. Nice. See where your mind is dwelling. Deeper thoughts. Much appreciated. So, I think we've talked ourselves out here. I think we stop <laughs> and take prasadam. Shri Shri Goradam Adavaki Jai Guru Vaishnav Guru Paramparaki Jai. Or Bhakta Vrinda.